boys are getting a little bit ugly out there. Give them, give them all a cookie and make them settle down. Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. We have a special interview today uh, with Micah Blake McCurdy, Ineffective Math on Twitter. Uh, Micah, thank you for appearing on what I will preemptively declare as our most outclassed interview to date. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm pleased Pleased to see you. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. So we know it's a little bit later out on the East Coast right now. So thank you for taking the time today. No worries. Uh, so we actually have a good strategy today. Um, our uh, resident mathematician, our math grad, uh, Evan, the third host of this podcast, actually is not here, <laughs> strangely enough. And so we have Brad Clever. and I. Yeah, we, <laughs> we really decided to go all in on this one. Um, Mike, um, I first want to ask you, uh, most people know you through Hockey Viz. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about what Hockey Viz uh, where it started, where you've brought it, and kind of what you do with that. So the extremely abbreviated story is that I wanted to know how many points the Senators were going to take from a California road trip seven years ago. Hmm. And uh, and then I have too much education. And so I, instead of guessing it, I decided to write a simulator to try to simulate it. And then I wanted to do it properly, so I needed to learn some advanced stats. And then it kind of all got out of hand. <laughs> yeah. And... <laughs> Specifically with the website, I, I started making stuff for every team so that I knew I was doing it right. The, so as a kind of debugging trick. And, uh, and then I started posting it on Twitter because a friend of mine who was super into Survivor and talked to her friends on Twitter about reality TV, she said, oh, you know, if you want to meet new people to talk to about like whatever weird stuff you're into, you should make a Twitter handle. And she's younger than me. And so I decided that that was a fine idea. And, uh, <laughs> And so I, I made a Twitter account as a joke, um, as you can probably tell from the slightly silly handle, which is a pun on how I could never get a real a full time math job. <laughs> and and then and then from there I started sharing these these charts about Twitter about about Twitter about hockey and uh, and sort of slowly slowly grew up a, a a group of people who were curious to see data viz about their own team. And then I got tired of answering people's questions, and so I made a website so that they could look at stuff. And then. <laughs> It, it kind of took off. And so I thought, you know, this is taking a lot of my time and I enjoyed doing it a lot more than I enjoyed doing my day job. So I thought I have to make a way to make this pay so that I can quit my day job. And then a few years later I did. That's so that's the, the like super abbreviated version of why I came to get to where I am now. But now it is my full-time job. I do a little teaching on the side and a little freelance work um, for teams or for agents or for anybody who, have, you know, is willing to pay me money so that I can figure something about hockey out for them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but hockey visit the website and selling subscriptions to it is is my number one gig. So a uh, a guy from Nova Scotia wants to figure out a team from Ottawa's points that point that they're going to get from a California road trip and is encouraged by a fan of this reality television show Survivor to put it yes. on Twitter. In fact, at the time she was more into Big Brother than into Survivor. Right. But that's <laughs> Oh, that's that's a generic story if I've ever heard one. <laughs> yeah. It's it's. I do get all these questions now. I I to my somewhat confusion, I am viewed as a success by a number of people on Twitter, and I, I get maybe once every few weeks messages, DMs from strangers that say, "I really want to get into analytics. What can I do?" And and I I don't tell them you should do what I did. I don't think. You know, in as much as I may or may not be a success, I'm not certain that that's, you know, I got a math PhD along the way, too. I'm not certain that that's the way to go about anything. Mm-hmm. But but one way or another, the, that's where it ends up. And now I explain to my children at dinner time that I sell pictures to strangers on the Internet, and that's how they get food. <laughs> I would 
love to hear a conversation where someone goes, how do I do what you do? And you just give them the abbreviated answer of uh, <laughs> go to school and watch Survivor. <laughs> I, I've still never even watched an episode of Survivor, I, but I, I feel indebted to it professionally <laughs> because of my friends. You know the next lockout, you have to do advanced statistics on the television show Survivor, right? I will. I mean, there's no question. That is, yeah. I, and I, I don't mean to joke about a, a lockout because that actually will affect your full-time day job now. But No, I will lose a bunch of money now if there's yeah, a lockout. Yeah. A bunch. So fingers crossed that that doesn't happen to Micah. But I'm just saying if you're fu- from the Survivor niche on Twitter, like Micah's friend is, you guys are in for a world of gain because these, uh, these, these charts <laughs> and pictures are beautiful. Um, so <laughs> nice of you to say so. <laughs> these uh, th- these past few weeks have been um, very pertinent, obviously to the world of hockey as a whole. We just had the trade deadline, but with more people on Twitter, more people engaging generally with hockey media, whether it's just mindless talking heads like us or, or people who do actual work like you, um, you things get a lot more exposure and amplification, like analytics. And I saw a window into that. Uh, analytics related to the trade deadline who won this trade where's a team gaining uh what kind of trade-offs are being made between these players uh more so than any other year did you find that your work had a more i don't know if prominence is the right word but engagement or there was more of a a a need or a, a want for the the kind of work that you're doing around this deadline there absolutely is and and this is part of of just how big an industry hockey is as a like not just an industry in the sense of people working, but as a as a thing throughout culture that people are engaging in, and people want to engage at every level. And some people are keen about; it. they just want to know, you know, who has more points than who. You know, that's that's all they they're interested in knowing. And other people want to know every tiny, tiny detail. And and so there's there's ways to engage with people, you know, all over the place. And as analytics, as well as like it develops with all of the rest of understanding of the game. And so as people are learning more and more about it, you're starting to see those conversations get more and more sophisticated and they're less just people yelling at people on Twitter. And so some of the conversations, that's still there, of course, yeah. but some of the conversations are getting really interesting. And, and there's a whole host of people with a whole host of different motivations, which is, which is part of what makes the job really fun. And so on, on trade deadline day, I make a point of, of you know, I'm, I'm at my desk, I'm putting stuff out, I'm watching the news constantly. And, you know, whenever there's a rumor, whenever there's a trade, I'm putting out like my, I don't know if analysis is the word, but, but what I think is relevant to that. And, and the opinions that I've been taking recently have been quite different from what you might see about, you know, just plain point totals or just, you know, oh, this guy has two cup rings or, you know, this guy is hated by his coach. And so he had to go like, I I don't do any of that kind of analysis because I can't keep track of it, even if I thought it was interesting, (laughs) but but that angle, you know, it's people talk all, you know, it's the be all and end all or something like you get into arguments like war fights about, you know, this is the value of this player, which I've always shied away from a little bit, even though I take a, a, a obviously a very analytics viewpoint. You know, I really want to have quantitative measurements. I want to say this is this is what I know for sure about this player and this is how sure I am. And this is just nonsense. But but I like to be a little bit more hands off so that I can just say you know, this is what I've been able to figure out. And and not be too judgmental about, yeah. you know, this is a complete disaster for this team. Although every now and again, the trade is a complete disaster. And then it's <laughs> pleasing that since I don't work for anybody in particular, I can just say this is a complete disaster for this team. <laughs> so speaking of that, related to this trade deadline, were there any deals that were swung at the deadline that you felt 
were particularly underrated or overrated in terms of what a team gave up for a player that, uh, let's just take an example like Wayne Simmons, who the analytics community is not so hot on, the hockey old boys club <laughs> seems to be really big on. Um, were there any yeah, so, that really stood out to you? Uh, just a few. Um, in fact, I uh, this is purely anecdotal, but I feel like in the last handful of years that I've been paying close attention you know, doing it for a job will do that to you. I feel like the trade market all up has become more reasonable. Like all trades seem fairer to me than they did several years ago. You know, Douglas Murray for two firsts, sorry, for two seconds is, you know, is not the kind of trade that gets made anymore, even though there are the occasional like lopsided trades. Um, So for instance, I don't know if you count it as exactly a deadline trade, but I considered Rask for Anita Ryder to be, to be a a heavily uneven trade. Um, and, and I was pleased, in a way, to see that everybody in the world seemed to agree with me about that. <laughs> um, on the other hand, I felt like a lot of the trades were, were very reasonable. I thought that the two trades involving the Red Wings were quite reasonable. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't um, – I really liked the Jensen trade for Washington specifically because I, I really like Nick Jensen. Um, but on the other hand, the Red Wings got back sort of a, a decent haul for him, I thought. Mm-hmm. The, and I – you know, and on the other hand – the, I really like Gustav Nyquist, and I was I, I was pleased to see him go to a contender where I, I think he'll have any, every chance of winning a cup. Um, but he wasn't exactly picked up, you know, on the cheap. He's not like a conditional seventh. So, so I felt like the deadline as a whole was pretty reasonable. I mean, on the other hand, also Eric Goodbranson was you know, <laughs> paid an asset for him, which is staggering. Yeah, <laughs> every every call up in every organization from the high on down to the low is helping you win games more than Eric Branson is. And they mostly cost minimum wage, not $4 million a year. And, you know, so there's still, there's still like the occasional thing where you can go, wow, that is an absolute mistake. But mostly I, I thought it was pretty good. For instance, the Wayne Simmons trade that you just mentioned, the, you know, I, I don't feel like Simmons is particularly, it certainly doesn't live up to what other people say about him. But then if you look at the price that the, predators paid to get him you know they didn't massively overpay for him like it wasn't like you know they didn't trade a two seconds for wayne simmons which would have been a massive massive overpayment like ryan hartman who's a capable player and, and a fair bit younger and also a conditional fourth is much is about what he's worth and so you know flyers fans and predators fans both got to gripe about that which is of course the the fairest possible outcome where everybody is upset <laughs> so yeah our, our assessment of the, the jensen trade was yeah, he was playing great hockey by the numbers, the best hockey out of any other Red Wings defenseman, which isn't exactly a, a difficult bar to, to reach. Um, but it was a circumstantial thing, right? Because he could help a team like Washington who's trying to contend and fill out their depth. But Detroit didn't have use for a player who had probably more value at the trade deadline that wasn't some kind of game-breaking talent. So Yeah, you're, it, it's, and he's not no. super talent, but he is useful and... And in this case, more useful in trade, like you said. Yeah. Um, the the good Branson thing is hysterical. Someone put a, a, a Twitter video montage, I think I retweeted it, of every amazing thing that Eric Goodbranson has done on the ice. Um, it's like six of them were crashing into the net at full speed, chasing after uh, a puck that was going in. I cannot believe it. It's like... <laughs> it's like paying money for someone to slap you instead of giving you an ice cream cone. I, there's no... Was that the most baffling trade of the deadline? Unquestionably. Yeah. The, there were several others where I thought, uh, you know, I don't quite follow that. Like, I'm not certain why Buffalo, 
you know, even if you think that that Brendan Montour is considerably better than I think he is, I, I'm not certain why they made that trade at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't know why they should be buying defenders, since I think they're essentially out of the playoff race. But, you know, but they obviously didn't think that. And there were a couple Winnipeg trades where I thought, you know, maybe stop now. You really have <laughs> enough players. You don't, you know, it's not that it's not that the trades themselves are bad exactly. You know, like Matt Hendricks is not great, but he's probably worth a second round pick. But you don't need another forward at all. Like, oh, I, forward depth is the best in the league. Maybe they went by the motto of if we have all the forwards, no <laughs> other team can have any. So there were, yeah, there were a few like head scratchers like that, but there wasn't anything, you know, that's not like, even if it's a mistake, it's an extremely minor mistake. Whereas, you know, Eric Branson, four million this year and next is, is the kind of mistake that only a GM. You know, I don't want to say that certain GMs are bad and certain GMs are good, but every GM has blind spots. And, you know, and big, useless defenders is clearly a, a Jim Rutherford blind spot. Now, when you look at Pittsburgh and you see that um, in the past year, they've now acquired Eric Goodbranson and Jack Johnson. Is there an overwhelming urge from the analytics community for all of you to com- cumulatively email Jim Rutherford with just your resumes attached? I Well, the funny thing, of course, is that you know, like, so I, I've worked for some, some teams in the past, and I'm, I'm not especially quick to do it again. The, but if I, like, if I were to work for the Penguins, I would be by far the stupider of the obvious analytics people who would work for <laughs> Pittsburgh. It's not, like, it's not as if the Sam Ventura, in case you don't know, is, is, I mean, he's one of the smartest people to ever think seriously about the game. And, and there's, it's not like there's any shortage of wisdom going around like this is clearly a case where where either somebody knows something incredibly bizarre that doesn't seem to translate into anything public which is strains credulity you know or you just have someone getting overruled yeah (laughs) so like it's and that in fact that's the you want to talk about like analytics working for teams is a very peculiar way to to make your living and the number one complaint that you hear when you talk to nerds of every stripe who've worked for teams or who've applied for teams or who've been part of that system for any length of time is, you know, oh, it was fun and all, and I didn't mind the money and the work itself was fun, but nobody paid attention to me, which made it ultimately unsatisfying. Interesting. And that's, that. you hear that, you know, some some people manage to find, like lots of people are, are delighted with their jobs and they find value and they obviously are not quitting in droves. But, but plenty of the people you would expect discover that that their dream job, once they get it, is actually just them beavering away at a computer where they're not allowed to tell people in the public what they work out. And when they tell their superiors what they work out, they get told, mm, that's nice. And then they just trade for whoever they feel like trading for anyway. <laughs> but uh, as someone who has a four and a six year old, doesn't that sound pretty appealing to you to just have that semblance of peace and quiet, not being disturbed too much? <laughs> I, I personally have, have taken the opposite approach from my little kids where I, I've sort of leaned into the chaos. Uh, <laughs> why not? Why not make your living on Twitter where it's just madness off in all directions at all times? So you mentioned um, sometimes there's a wealth of knowledge that maybe might not be utilized uh, to its fullest potential, at, fullest potential at all times. And I'm going to segue into the Red Wings here. Um, nice. What is your <laughs> – uh, if you do have, have any read or a take on, on where the Red Wings are in terms of deploying that, uh, that kind of uh, analytics skill set within the organization – um, and if so, is there, do you recognize any kind of situation where 
that old boys club mentality is taking over or the more traditional mentality is kind of overruling um, a little bit more of a progressive approach in analyzing players? Maybe it's, it's not so obviously cut and dried to me. And, and of course, one of the, the difficulties in hockey in some general sense is that a lot of the decisions that are made last for so long. And, and the most obvious reason of course, is that sometimes the contracts themselves are really long. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at, at some of the, you know, Zetterberg's contract and Jonathan Erickson's contract, for instance, in, in, in Detroit are, are clear problems, you know, the one maybe a little more than the other. Mm-hmm. And but on the other hand, like, I remember when those were signed and they didn't like, everybody said, well, you know, oh, it's a bit long. Oh, it's a bit much, but, but you don't realize sort of quite how much of a problem it's going to become. And, and so you might change your mind, however fast about some particular thing you might be, you know, if you want to use the, the like analytics buzzwords, you might be very adaptive. You might be taking on new information really well, but, you know, but those contracts are still signed. There's nothing you can do about it. And there's only so many tricks you can play. And so, and also you don't have the virtue of, of being disciplined about these things because the markets that you're talking about are not fully liquid. You don't like, if you just say, well, you know, we're not going to pay him in free agency and we're not going to renew him at this price, you know, then all of these people are just going to walk. There's not, and there's not an infinite supply of players that you can replace people with. There's only a thousand people who skate in the league every year, give or take, you know, and only a 30th of them or so play for you. So, you know, there's a kind of, it's lunchtime, I got to eat problem where if you want to have good players, you only have a small choice of them. And sometimes you might have to overpay them. So you're not working in a purely efficient environment. And so the decision-making process that you, that you apply has to take that into account. So you're not wrong there. And especially with the length of uh, most of the contracts, that's the big well, Abdelkader, Erickson, Glenn Denning, Helm. Anyways, I'm going to go on to a happier contract in Detroit. <laughs> so uh, this summer, Dylan Larkin uh, signed a long-term deal with Detroit. And depending who you talk to in the Wings fan base about whether or not he is or isn't a true number one center, if he's a good, just a really good second-line center, that's up for debate. What do your models and numbers say, or where do they say Larkin should slide into a lineup on a good team? So I... Uh, I think the tension that you just alluded to of, you know, maybe first line, maybe second line is about where he sits. And part of why is because he has a slightly unusual talent pattern or unusual ability pattern for, for centers up at the top of lineups. So most teams have first line centers who are primarily shooters. Even, even people talk all the time about how centers are, you know, so defensively responsible and they eat all these minutes and, and they, you know, they have to play against top competition. And all of that is true. And yet still, as a rule, most teams are putting their best scorers on their top lines. And it, maybe that's old-fashioned thinking. You know, precisely why that's true is not, is not completely clear to me. But you know, Matt Duchesne, for instance, was the first-line center in Colorado, and then he was the first-line center in Ottawa. And, and he has never been particularly defensively responsible. And he's not even generating shot differential very much he's not like tilting the ice as they say but but when there are chances he's finishing them because he's a great shot and there are plenty of other forwards who who match that pattern and so the primary thing that people are looking for when they're saying you know we're going to make this guy our top liner especially for wingers but even still for centers is shooting talent and what's unusual about larkin is that he's surprisingly good 
at tilting the ice, and he is not a marquee shooting talent. In fact, I think he's slightly below average in shooting talent. The, but but the, the like team effects, as I sometimes call them, how much is he putting the puck from his own zone into the neutral zone and how much from the neutral zone into the offensive zone? And then once he's into the offensive zone, how much is he generating chances? All of that stuff screams first-line center to me, especially... Um, especially the defensive aspects, because he's also killing penalties quite well, and he's 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 also drawing penalties extremely well. You know those which are I think of as defensive things. But then if you look at the single thing which most people most strongly associate with, I'm on the top line of my hockey team. It's I personally put the puck in the net, and he does that much less. And so that that creates that tension. I think of of exactly where does he fit? You know if you if you in some sort of perfect world, you might prefer to get into some situation where you had like a top six, which had no strong distinction between the top line, quote unquote, and the second line. Yeah. So that feeds into my next question, because that's a, that's a really interesting analysis. And we, we haven't really heard it broken down uh, at that level before. So just a broad sweeping, completely unfair question to ask. If you're talking about a Stanley Cup contender, do you envision uh, Larkin and his skill set and his abilities as uh, a viable number one center partnered with, say, two really good scorers, like uh, we clone Philip Zadina and he reaches full potential? Or do you think um, they would need to hit the jackpot and land, say, Jack Hughes this summer to really kind of build that center core uh, for a cup contender? I, I, I think that that question is unusually well poised because I think that could actually go either way. You know, if you like you know, if the wingers you're putting up on are like Mark Stone style wingers, then mm-hmm. sure, absolutely, he can be your first line center. Okay. And, you know, and if the wingers are like good, but not great, like sort of Phil Kessel style wingers, then, you know, maybe you need to upgrade. You know, and, you, sorry, go ahead. Well, just, and so, of course, that's one of those things that you, you, you can't sort of say, well, this is how we're going to project our center depth. And then we're not going to think about the wingers until we get it. You know, that, that line of thinking, I think, is a little bit too old school. You know, sometimes because you only have so many players and because you only have so many kicks that they can, if you get really good wingers, then you have to build from the wing. You can't have a single idea about how you're going to build a team. And if you get tremendous defenders like Nashville did, you have to build from the back out. And if you get great defenders, sorry, great dumb goaltenders, then you, you have to build that way. Like you kind of have to have a sufficient flexibility to say, this is what we've got and this is how we're going to make it work. We're not going to have one notion of team building strategy that we make everything else fit into you before uh we started recording micah you said you have a a a really strong talent to um angering both sides of any argument especially within fan bases (laughs) (laughs) and i believe you because i believe analytics uh are a great kind of vessel into that but you just made a friend of every Red Wings fan, no matter what side of the Larkin argument they were on. You both agreed with the fact that he might be a second-line center, but also that he could be a top-line center on a contending team. So, And in a single breath, insulted Phil Kessel, former Toronto Maple Leaf. So you're doing really great here. Well, Kessel, of course, is one of these cases where where people have to be careful because he was, he was very... I mean, he was set upon by Toronto media almost. Mm-hmm. And... And he and he was held up as an emblem of this particular stereotype, you know, that anybody who scores, especially wingers who score, must be defensively weak. And and there were a lot of analytics types who who kind of bristled at that reflexively, the because there are scoring wingers who aren't bad defensively. You can fill the net and be great defensively, and still be a winger. 
You know, this is not some sort of, you know, pie in the sky notion. And yet Phil Kessel is, in fact, really black as he's painted. Like, he's a tremendous scorer, fantastic shot. And he is, in fact, quite weak defensively. And these stereotypes, you know, they are occasionally true. And so it's still useful to fight against the stereotype while realizing that some people, sometimes the shoe fits. Um, you mentioned Mark Stone, and that was uh, actually a great point that I forgot to even uh, write down here. Uh, looking at the numbers on that one, obviously being the marquee trade of the entire deadline, is it correct to say that Mark Stone is possibly the most underrated asset that's been traded in a long, long time? Like He's been regarded within the analytics community and, and just the general hockey community as one of the best two-way wingers in the, in the league. But is he genuine? Like that payment, would you call it an underpayment? And uh, Ottawa lost out huge. I don't know. It's it's very tough to say. And I mean, you always knew. I mean, so first of all, just trading him in the first place is is insane. <laughs> yeah. You know, regardless of the return, you know, deciding to push that button is in itself an insane decision. But then, then once you were going to do it, it was always going to be a you know a, a talent, an elite talent now for talent in the future. And so draft picks are the obvious choice, and then prospects, especially good ones, are the are the other obvious choice. And then, but prospect evaluation is is at least to me personally is incredibly difficult. And and so for professional reasons, when I need to to evaluate prospect talent, like if there's you know like Zadina, for instance, he's going to play however many minutes. Although it turns out that he didn't play as many as I expected. <laughs> the, I you know like I I I paid a woman whose opinions I respected to give me quantitative guesses about how all prospects, including Zadina, I don't know, I, I, in fact, I, I let her use her judgment about which ones she thought were going to play serious minutes so that I could put that into my predictive models. The, because I need to know, I need to have, like, not all prospects are equal, but, but also I, I don't have good data to, to do that. And people who do, you know, you don't know those people in the analytic circles because they're already working for teams because every team wants to have scouting um, info. Like that prospect stuff, and so which is a long way of saying that this Brandstrom trap, who's clearly the most important part of the return for Stone, is by all accounts what superstars look like when they're his age, and and yet not everybody who looks like a superstar at that age pans out, and and so there's that uncertainty is what makes me like if if he is as good as people say, then I feel the deal may actually be fair. But on the other hand, the uh, if I was being like, I mean, if I was working on Bay Street or on the or in Manhattan for a hedge fund, you know, then I would have to do my due diligence to price in the uncertainty of how an asset that is already amazing is more certain and therefore more valuable than an asset that might be amazing. Mm-hmm. You have to to take that into account, and then quantitatively, I'm just completely at odds and ends. I don't know how to do that, uh, and so I don't know. Is the the short version. <laughs> um, so when it, I'm actually really interested too, because you were talking about uh, trying to analyze young players. So obviously one of the big uh, hot button issues around Detroit over the last month or so was uh, Dennis Chalosky's demotion, um, followed shortly by Philip Hronick's uh, promotion um, back up to the Red Wings. And when you look at most of the underlying analytics with Chalosky's season, um, it hasn't looked great for him, but the raw numbers have looked pretty good. The eye test has looked pretty good. He's made rookie mistakes, but what I'm more interested in is not necessarily him specifically, but 
Do you notice any trends specifically with rookie defensemen? Is it pretty common for them to come in, struggle for a year or two, and then see a pretty steady trend upwards? Or if a number one defenseman or a number two defenseman comes into the league, you can see it right away. What's more common there, if you've noticed? Uh, I, I think you do see both patterns, but the struggles are almost always present. The like um, In Ottawa, we, we've seen this with Thomas Shabbat, for instance, who started the year absolutely on a tear. And and there were there were people, God bless them, who were saying things like, you know, we didn't really need Eric Carlson after all. <laughs> and, and and you know, and it's it's sort of obviously stupid in retrospect, but at the time, especially, you know, not just by I, but also, you know, by taking careful results, he was putting up the kinds of results that that we had come to expect from Carlson. And and you know, the Red Wings, of course, have famously preferred to to keep their young prospects. The, out of the NHL for long enough to be completely certain that they're as good as they're going to get, and and maybe losing some some of the value of them because they're they could be getting value f- to the Red Wings, but instead they're they're in a farm club. The and but you do you do almost always see, especially in in defenders because they're the most um, coached position, even more than center, where they're they're expected to to play a game which is not obviously intuitive, you know, to do specific things at specific times. Um, and that's unusually difficult for, for young players. And so you can, you do see those teething problems even in players who seem to burst into the league. And so sometimes with Shabbat, for instance, we've been seeing it in the later half of the season where um, for whatever reason, perhaps fatigue, the you're starting to see his game look a lot weaker than it did at the start of the year, you know, and, or perhaps you have somebody like Shane Goss to spare, the, whose rookie season was was um, glittering from start to finish, and then whose second season was not nearly as impressive. And a lot of people say, well, you know, what happened there? And I'm not convinced that the conventional answer of, well, just send them back down and we'll give them a ton of minutes in some other league is necessarily the solution. Um, so I, I'm not perfectly certain that just more minutes is, is always some sort of panacea. But... Uh, but I think you always see some level of um, confusion, if you like, around the earliest stages of players. Now, just one more uh, player-specific question uh, that I, we think our listeners might want to hear about before we get into some more uh, broad topics. Um, you mentioned the Jensen trade. Uh, Madison Bowie, the defender that came back, um, the take on him... I've seen a, a few exaggerated kind of claims that he was the main piece coming back, which obviously wasn't the case. That was the second round pick. Uh, but there have been some thoughts that he had a lot of potential and just it wasn't working out for him in Washington, but it, that could still come forward. The nagging feeling that I have is that he was just kind of a filler in the trade, a home run swing that Ken Holland tried to take. And um, if I had to put my money down, I don't think that he would pan out in any kind of substantial way. Um, is there any kind of interpretation you have of him as a prospect or, or a future defender for the Red Wings? I so I um, off the cuff I panned him in the in my analysis of the trade right when it happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I from everything that I've seen of watching him and also from what I can tell from models, I I don't see him as having any positive impact really to speak of. Um, and and when I said as much, the um, I was immediately lambasted from two fronts that I expect. <laughs> One of which that I expected, and one of which I did not. Um, the one which I expected was Caps fans who basically said, "But Micah, we love him, 
and the you know in knowingly in the teeth of of how good he was and and this is one of those things that I don't take into account that I'm I'm sort of personally and naturally sensitive to but I don't think of when I'm quote unquote in work mode that that many players are beloved well and over and above their on ice contributions. <laughs> Welcome to Detroit. <laughs> yeah, right. And and I mean, and and we know like this is this is a two way street, right? Like you know, Senators fans know that when players don't feel appreciated by their organization, they have a tendency to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, like Alfredson to Detroit, for instance. The you know that like there's memories are still short there. But and the other thing that I didn't expect is that a handful of of um, analytics people, nerds, as I call them for short, the, who I respected privately telling me, you know, before you pan this guy again in public, you should maybe take a closer look at his AHL stats, which are incredible. And, and so I don't, as a matter of, of day-to-day work, I don't look at AHL stats. I'm not good at interpreting them. The, but, and, I, and I don't think they're as relevant as some people think they are. But then if you look at, at Madison Bowie's AHL numbers, you see he's playing much, much better in the AHL, like really incredibly well. And then you look at how old he is and you realize maybe there is actually quite a potential along the lines we were talking about a second ago about defenders that, that maybe there'll be some real development there, but it would be, it would really be um, turning over a new leaf for him to, to put up something really impressive, I think. All right. So to move into, I I guess um, the last broad piece here before we let you go, um, you do have. You mentioned that you have two young ones, and uh, sleep is precious. So we'll try not to <laughs> dip into that too much. Um, we've alluded to the fact that the world of hockey statistics and analytics is, for at least from our end, kind of blowing up right now. Every single day, it seems you you there's more prominence and there's more recognition being thrown in that direction. Um, is that kind of what you see it as? On, like in work mode, do you view? Um, what you're doing as being a little bit more prominent? Do you get more engagement from the league? Is, is there more interest from the fans? In what direction do you feel it's headed in? I think it's definitely, it's definitely expanding heavily. And part of why is, is not what you, I don't know. I mean, your particular interpretation of analytics is one thing, but a lot of people think of analytics as purely this sort of team driven. This is how we're going to make the best choices. And and that aspect, I feel, is quietly being picked up by various teams, uh, especially now that player tracking is coming along and now there's going to be more information with which to make choices. That's not the angle that excites me, though, and not where I see the most change. The most change I see is just in, in fan engagement style things that aren't just, here, look at this number. Isn't it a lot bigger than that number? So you can have broadcasts, for instance, um, uh, somewhat to my chagrin, but a sort of simultaneous pleasure and displeasure, um, two different, both TSN and Sportsnet networks have used my graphics to illustrate a particular point that they were trying to make about um, scoring totals or about scoring locations. And so they'll actually put up graphs that I have made without asking me ahead of time. <laughs> the, and, and so on the one hand, I'm delighted because I think my work is amazing and I love to see it on national TV. But on the other hand, I'm ticked because it's my stuff and why did you take it without asking me? And, but, but, you know, purely as a, like a zeitgeisty thing, I look at that and think, you know, there's clearly a producer at least who thinks that there's an angle here that you can put something on a TV screen and say, look, this is where so-and-so is scoring his goals from. This is where the team is taking their shots from. This is where they're allowing shots from, you know, in a way that's not just more than 60% of chances from the slot, you know, which is like 
you know, not everything has to be turned into sound bites to, to be put across to a TV audience. And I'm finding that on Twitter too, that, that some of the things I put out are by nature mathematical and interest only people who have a certain technical background. But some of the stuff I put out is, is no less rigorous. It's not, you know, fake or cheap in any way. And yet is still finding an audience with people who want to look at the game that they love in more ways, in different ways, and don't feel put off by something because it's quote unquote analytics, which is not about decision making. It's not about choices. It's not about, oh, contract value. It's just about, hey, look, this is what an uh, offensive zone cycle looks like if you graph all the passes, you know, that. And, and so there's a, a pure engagement, mm -hmm. hey, neat aspect, which is not, you know, even if it uses nerdy tools, if you like, is not intrinsically mathematical or analytics-y or, you know, money-ball-y. So, so for a layman like me, the thing I love doing going through um, all your charts and models and stuff like that is I have no idea how you get the data. I, I loosely understand how it is, but I love using as many different um, stats as I can find to analyze a player. Like, for example, this year we were watching Trevor Daly and we go, wow, he looks particularly bad this year. Do the data back, does the data back that up? So we would go to a bunch of different websites. Oh yeah, no, everything says he's terrible. But at the same time, I'm just looking at very isolated um, samples. What I want to know as someone who, from you, who's looking at this day in, day out, is there any trends that you're noticing that mainstream hockey doesn't talk about? Like whether it's the aging uh, regression seems to be a lot more prominent than it used to be or if a player hasn't hit his stride by 23 90 percent of the time he fades out is there anything like that that you've started to notice uh, in the last few years yeah i've noticed that that the gains as it were of analytics as a field are a little uneven and and they tend to vary heavily by position so in some sense at forward i feel like the nerds are already running up the score in hockey but at defense, the the old school types are still dominating the the like discourse is not the word because it's not like I'm having a daily conversation with GMs. But <laughs> but in terms of like who's actually getting minutes, like there was a time when when playing Steve Ott a bunch of minutes a night was was considered necessary. Uh, and you know Montreal traded for him deliberately as part of a playoff push only two years ago, and and this is almost unthinkable. And so it's it's not. I don't think it's a coincidence that like the figures of fun of the oh my god I can't believe you're playing this guy for a bunch of minutes a night are are all defenders now. You know you're not getting you're not getting those numbers out of out of fourth liners anymore. You're getting them out of quote-unquote, third-pair guys, which are occasionally second-pair guys, depending on who you, on what team you're actually talking about. So I noticed that that, and then, of course, if you want to, like, look at the vanguard past that, you have people like Brian Stimson, people like Nick Mercadante, who are who are pushing theories of coaching. You know, those those two know a lot about coaching, and I know almost nothing. Theories of coaching that that avoid positions, that that really make the difference between center and wing, between left and right defender, Know, much less suggesting you know lots of rotations lots of movements people covering you know you're, you're getting into a kind of total hockey by analogy to a total football sort of line of thinking and but but you see the lines drawn on the map if you like that way and once you look at it once you 
see those things in relief, then you can realize that actually certain certain angles of decision making have already been completely professionalized, for lack of a better word, where, you know, we're, we're starting to see teams like Tampa who are making sure that every forward line can score. The starting to see certain teams put out, you know, like um, Nashville, for instance, is making sure that their top four defenders are indistinguishable from one another. So you're, you're putting in, you're starting to see more and more of those like regularization elements where things are becoming more systematic. And so that's, that's very encouraging. So last question for you, Micah, is um, a lot of the uh, listeners today won't have had uh, any kind of deep dive or uh, maybe even interest, uh, not to speak for them, uh, in advanced analytics. Uh, if you're speaking to someone who had an interest in it, wanted to just know more about their hockey team or be able to speak to more, uh, what would you recommend the average fan learn first about analytics, whether it's an, uh, an entire concept or a specific kind of statistic to look at? Is there any kind of entry point where you say, this is the best tool for you or the, the best uh, piece of data for you to be be looking at if you want to start this journey? I think if you want to get started, the um, it's probably easiest to not think about analytics and instead just think about about angles of hockey, like aspects of hockey that you want to understand. I mean, analytics is is by itself is not interesting at all. Like the only thing that makes it interesting is that it's about hockey, right? Like <laughs> I mean, we're all we're all on the same side in the sense that we're like trying to figure stuff out. And so so if you if you have people you trust that you can speak to, if you have websites you like, if you have people on Twitter that you like, if you have people on Reddit, on, on you know, coaches you know, whoever you can talk to, you can say, well, this is an aspect of the game that I want to understand, and I would like a new perspective on it. That can give you something where you can, where you can dive in, where instead of you're saying, you know, teach me the game afresh, you know, everybody who's interested in those sorts of questions, they already, they already know what the game looks like and they can ask specific sorts of questions and what kinds of questions they ask will give you follow-ups about, about how you should look. You know, if they're going to ask questions about, you know, when is the drop pass good, you know, you're going to walk to talk to a coach. And if you're going to ask questions like when is an eight year contract, an advisable choice, you're going to want to talk to somebody who's interested more in GM analytics. And if you're going to look at, at cap structures, if you're going to look at neutrals on four checks, if you're going to look at, you know, all of these different things, you're going to have totally different answers. But if I was to pick one thing out of a hat, I would start with shot rates and trying to, to isolate skaters to not look at measures that that involve goalies, unless you're specifically interested in goalies, in which case, you know, that could be a great angle to, to get into things because goalie analytics are also you know, difficult and extremely interesting. But but five on five shot rates specifically are one of these things that we've uh, we've known are important for a long time, and there's a great body of work done not just by me but also by a bunch of other people where you can say, okay, well, this is a five on five shot rate for a particular circumstance. Look how they get lots of chances near the net. Well, why is that? Especially if you're asking questions about a team that you know well that you have watched a lot, then you're not just looking at a graph or you're not just looking at a chart and reading off a number. You know, you're connecting. You're saying, aha, these people are generating those shots because. I know that they're graded zone entries, you know, and even if that's wrong, it's still sensible because you know the team and now you're started, right? You can ask more questions. You can start to flesh things out. So thinking about it as a totally new thing makes it alien and almost impossible. And thinking about it as a new perspective on something that you already know a lot about makes it something that's fascinating and, and interesting and gives you a, a step up. 
So for those of you um, who are inspired and now motivated uh, to kind of step into that realm, uh, HockeyViz.com is a fantastic place to start. Um, if you aren't familiar with Micah's work, um, we really, really do recommend that you check it out. So HockeyViz.com or at InEffectiveMath on Twitter. Uh, Micah, thank you so much for joining us today. This was, uh, as we predicted, we were heavily outclassed, but it was a fantastic interview. We really appreciate you coming on. I'm pleased to do it. Thanks for having me. Big jackstrap. Oh my god.